Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues through a new series that focuses on the family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled Rules of Communication. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. We're talking about communication this morning, so if you want, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Communication is important to every part of our life, in every relationship, every work, every job that we have, but I think no more is it important than one of the jobs that we had, and that was serving on a, on a foreign mission field. Now, the first thing that a mission board will do when you get assigned to a field is you will go there and you will immediately enter into language school. And there's good reason for that, because if you don't speak Chinese, it's really hard to share the gospel with Chinese people. And so you go to language school and you study morning, noon, and night for months and months, sometimes years, depending on the difficulty of your language. But if you don't learn the language, you're not going to last very long. One of the common denominators of people who have been on the mission field more than 10 years in the same place is that they do have a good and thorough grasp of the language so that you can speak to people, you can share the gospel, you can do Bible studies and things with them, you can build relationships. Without that, you're not going to get very far. My wife and I, we'd, we'd observe new missionaries come in, and we can always tell from the beginning kind of who's going to make it and who doesn't. The missionaries that make it long-term are the ones who go, they go deep into the language, they get the language, but it's not just academic. They take what they've learned in their language school and they go out and they're willing to embarrass themselves and to practice it with your really, for us, really poor Chinese. And I've, I've said all kinds of Chinese social faux pas. Uh, I won't even tell you what some of those were, but just give you an indicator, the word for mother and horse are the exact same word with a different tone. So there's, there's some trouble you can get into with that language. But you've got to be willing to talk to people. You've got to be willing to speak their language, to know how they think, so that you can minister to those people. And if you don't do that, you're going to be going home pretty soon. And I think the same thing is true with marriage. You know, the missionaries, before they, you know, if they were going to not get the language very well, what they would do instead is they would invest themselves into other American missionaries as friends, or they would stay indoors and they would binge Netflix and things because their lack of ability to communicate would cause them to pull away. We do see that in marriage, don't we? If you don't communicate well, you're not speaking the same language, you're not observing the right rules of communication, it gets to a place where you don't want to be around each other. And rather than going deep into your mate, you go deep into other relationships instead. Can that happen? Where wives, they've got their girlfriends, and that's really where they go deep, not so much with their husbands. Husbands, we're hanging out, we're joining bowling leagues and softball teams because the guys on the team get me, not so much my wife. And even when you go out on a date, you don't go out on a single date. God help you if you should get together, just the two of you and talk. But it's awkward. And because you've not learned to communicate, you're always inviting double dating, double dating, because to go in deeply with just your mate is not a skill that maybe you've learned yet. And so we start to invest in the relationships around us, or worse yet, you just pull away from your mate and you binge watch Netflix like those missionaries who never learned Chinese language. And so there are rules to communicating well with one another. We're going to look at them in Ephesians chapter 4. And the first rule that we're going to see begins in verse 25, and that is be honest. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This word falsehood is the Greek word pseudos. Sounds a lot like the prefix pseudo, like pseudoscience is a false science. Or it might be a pseudonym, it's a false name, it's an alias. And so falsehood, that which is pseudo, that which is fake, is something that believers are to put away from them, it, namely because falsehood is what describes Satan. Jesus talking to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he was pretty straight up with them. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar 
and he is the father of lies. So if we're a believer and we're using falsehood and we're using lies in our life, we didn't learn that from our heavenly father. How is Jesus described? He is the way, the truth, in the life. So when we speak in truth, we deal in truth, we're very truthful with one another, we are walking in the spirit of God. But when we find ourselves resorting to lies and to other things that relate, are related to lies, at that point, we are, we're, we're leaning on the old ways or perhaps we're not even born again. Can a believer lie? Of course they can. But the more that we lie, the more that we deceive, it speaks against our conversion. And that's what Jesus was sharing with them. The reason we are, the reason I can say that you're of your father the devil is because your life is characterized by lies and deception. These are the men who, who lied about Jesus and said he is a devil himself and who paid off people to lie against him in court. And Jesus says, this speaks to your parentage. Your lying and deception is a spiritual paternity test. Who is your father? I don't know. Let's observe who you resemble. If you kids ever want to have a fun activity, pull out your old parents' yearbooks and see what they looked like when they were your age. You're probably, hopefully, you'll find a lot of resemblance there because our DNA makes us look like them. Similarly, the Bible says we've been regenerated, regened. The very DNA of God has been placed within us such that as we consume spiritual food, as we drink spiritual drink, as we grow in God, we begin to look more and more like our Heavenly Father in less and less like where we came from. And so lying and deception is something that begins to fade away from us. Now, can falsehood ever creep into a marriage? I mean, let's just start out with the straight up lie. Can, can mates lie to one another? Oh, we can do that. You know, who ate the last of the chocolate chips? Um, it's one of the kids, you know. Uh, we, we can lie to each other about more serious matters too. Where were you? Well, I was at work. And you know full well you weren't at work. So mates, we can lie to each other to protect ourselves. And there's other things that we can do that are also forms of falsehood. Falsehood is just anything that's not true here. It's pseudo, it's not real. We're creating a, a false reality for someone to believe so that they go away believing something that isn't true. And that shows up when we exaggerate. You ever get into an argument and then you're just tempted to blow up the argument a little bit more to make it sound a little bit more impressive so as to support your argument as to why you are justified in being angry with that person. And so we exaggerate, we use terms like you always, you never, you know, and so we start exaggerating to make a point. That's a form of falsehood. Uh, what about assumptions? You ever, make, you ever build up a straw man argument where we, we build up our mate to, have, to be a certain way or to have done a certain thing, it's not really true. We're assuming that it's true. You did this, and when you did this, you meant to do this, you were trying to hurt me, you wanted me to feel this way. Do you really know that to be true? You don't know that to be true. And so we're building up, we're lying to ourselves because we want to believe this to be true because then my outrage towards you is morally justifiable. And so assumptions are just another form of falsehood without verifying the facts, without going to them and just telling your mate, hey, hey, baby, when you did this to me the other day, this isn't true, by the way, you know, but you did this, said this the other day, it made me feel this way, help me understand. That's how we come to an understanding of a person's motives. Making assumptions is a form of falsehood, the worst kind, the kind that we tell ourselves. I know you meant to do this. We don't know that. Another way is just deception. Deception's a little bit different than lying. Lying is just straight up telling you something that isn't true. Deception is, is crafty. It's, I'm gonna tell you just enough of the truth so that in my heart I can say, I told the truth. But knowing full well, I'm letting you walk away believing a lie. How insidious is that? That I'm standing on this position, this supposed moral high ground, that I'm saying truthful statements, but my intention is, I want you to walk away believing something that's not true. Whew. <laughs> dodged that bullet, you know, that deception that, that can enter into marriage where we only tell them, you know, maybe you're both on a diet together, not saying I've done this, but hypothetically, you're on a diet together and your, your wife asks you what you had to eat today and you tell her truthfully, I had, uh, I had grilled chicken and vegetables and you leave it there, knowing full well after that you caved and broke and you had three oatmeal cream pies, but you don't tell her. Now what you told her was true, you had chicken and vegetables, 
What she doesn't know is that you were binging like a child on Halloween, you know, with little Debbie and you know, having this adulterous affair with little Debbie over here when you're supposed to be faithful to the chicken. That's deception, where we tell, we tell them just enough truth so that they walk away believing a lie. Or men, I, I may or may not have been guilty of this in the past, but I have a friend who told me a story once where, you know, the wife wanted him to get some things done at home, and you know, he gets busy doing other things and he forgot, but the moment she gets home, what is that brother doing? He fell asleep watching TV, the Cheeto stains are still on his fingers, but the brother's standing right there, she's walking in the door, and he's putting things in the dishwasher. Look how faithful I am, honey. Now, what was I, what was I trying to communicate? Wait, this whole time, man, I have been working so hard. What were you really doing? You fell asleep with Cheetos and football, but you want her to believe that you're a better husband than you really are. And so deception, without us even realizing it, can enter into every part of our relationship. Now, deception is dangerous because we gotta remember that who is it that is called the deceiver of the brethren? Deceiver of the whole world? That's Satan. Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. We don't, we don't want to be like Satan, and yet when we are lying and when we are deceiving people, we are most like him at that time. Deception's bad because every relationship is built on trust, isn't it? You go down to the gas station. I mean, are you really getting out some chemistry test to try to see whether or not the composition of that gas is the right octane? You're not. You're just trusting them. I believe this is 87 or 89 or whatever octane it goes to. You know, I believe that there's no water in this gas tank. You go to a pharmacist, they give you some bizarre pill that's just stamped G345. You have no idea what that is, but you put it in your mouth anyway and hope you don't grow a third arm. You don't know, but you're trusting them. You go to McDonald's, you trust them whether you order chicken McNuggets that there's actually chicken in that nugget. That might be misplaced trust right there. But all relationships, they're built on trust, aren't they? How much more important is trust then in the marriage relationship that when I, when I speak to you, you know you can trust my words? Or when I'm speaking to you, even if they're truthful, I know that you're not gonna let me go away knowingly believing a lie. Instead, Proverbs 31.11, you know, Proverbs 31, the, that passage of the ideal biblical woman, the, you called them P31s, right, in college, and you're looking for that P31, this, this Proverbs 31 woman, this, this beautiful, glorious example of Christ. And one of the things that exemplifies her here is that it says the heart of her husband safely trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. I remember actually telling my wife this verse, this is the reason that, that we have stuck together is I trust you. I trusted her. She wasn't the kind of girl to flirt around with other guys. She wasn't the kind of girl to lie to me, to deceive me. I trusted her. And it says that this husband, he will have no lack of gain. Now, what is the lack of gain? That's a weird thing to pair with a husband trusts safely in her. You see, back then, it, we didn't have what we had today with banking and things, and so if a husband walked away, and he, most often back then, he would go out to work, and the wife would, she'd watch the kids, she'd take care of the house, uh, sometimes she would work in the fields nearby, she may sell a few things, but she was largely at home. Well, what if you have a wife you don't trust? You take all your valuables and you lock them in a box. This guy here is saying, I trust my wife, I can leave that box open and I will not be lacking any gain. She's not gonna go out and blow all this money. She's not gonna live wantonly and wastefully. She's not gonna deceive me and then go out and wastefully spend money on, on silly and frivolous things. I safely trust in her in every way. Well, Ephesians 4, he's talking about falsehood, but what does he tell us to do with falsehood? He tells us to put it away. We are not to, we are to put away falsehood from us. Putting away is the idea of taking off clothing that doesn't belong to us anymore. It doesn't fit us. It's not who we are. And we're casting it off and we're walking away. Any of you guys in high school ever work fast food? Some of you? A couple of you? See a few of you. Uh, I worked Burger King, okay? Uh, high school, worked two years. My first year of college, I just kept working Burger King. It was all I knew. Now, when I went to Burger King, I got these really classy blue pants with this little blue polo with like these 1980s looking stripes across the front and my really fun little hat that's too big and it stands up like a 10 gallon hat. And I had my Burger King name tag. And when I worked at Burger King, I had to wear that because that was my uniform. Well, having worked there three years, it got full of grease and other things that just kind of infect the clothing and it, it was nasty. I wore it because I had to. 
But when I left Burger King for something more lucrative, I went into residential house painting at that point. When I left Burger King, I took off those Burger King clothes and you know what? I never had a temptation to put them on again. I, I wasn't, you know, back then malls were even bigger than what they are today, but never once was I tempted. You know what? I know I can pick up some girls if I put on that Burger King uniform <laughs> and stroll into there and hey ladies, you know, and they'll say, wow, did you work at Burger King? And I say, yes, I did. How can you tell? You know, you like what you see. No, you say, that doesn't belong who you, to who you are. That identified you once before. You were Heath, the Burger King worker, worker the, 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 the Whopper man, and the fry guy, and the, the drive through guy. That was you one time, but now it doesn't identify who you are. And so I took those greasy, smelly clothes off, and, I, and you know what? I've never been tempted to put them on again. Does that surprise anybody? I mean, if you wanted to ever put your old, you know, if you worked at Chick-fil-A or Burger King, McDonald's, you never, never had a desire to put that back on again because it doesn't identify who you are today. In the same way, he says, falsehood to a believer is Burger King uniform to an adult in who you are today. I took it off. It, it identified my old past, but it's no longer me. Therefore, believers, we may used to have been this, this person who lied and who deceived but we're no longer somebody who is practicing the lying and deceit trade. We're not dealing with that anymore. In fact, this, this word here, put away, it's in the aorist tense, was just a way of saying, it's, let's just say past tense. He's saying, having put it away, he's assuming that as a believer, you don't want to live in lies anymore. You don't want to live in deception anymore. That's the desire of a believer. I don't want to live like that. It's like, it's like putting on a Burger King hat trying to impress your friends. It, it, lying and deceit, it doesn't fit who a believer is because our Father is, and our Savior is the truth. God feels very strongly about lying, by the way. Proverbs 12, 22, God calls lying an abomination. Remember abominations? Those are those things that God hates so much it gives him an emotional reaction why do you think God hates lying like that? It's because that's what describes Lucifer and Satan and all that opposes God. Proverbs 6 lists lying amongst the sins that God hates, some people call the deadly sins. Isaiah 59 says lying separates us from God. Proverbs 14, 25 calls liars treacherous. Proverbs 19.5 says, liars will not go unpunished. And so believers, we're very aware that lies are bad and that God despises lying and deception in any form, right? We know that God lies. In fact, by the way, did you know that's where the practice of, can't do it very organically, crossing your fingers, you know, you ever seen that in a movie or something? Someone's crossing their fingers behind their back and you ever wonder why we do that when we, when we lie? I don't, you know, but why people do that? Do you know that? practice of crossing your fingers when you lie didn't start with the world. It started with Christians. Because crossing your fingers isn't simply making them over top of each other. Technically, you are making a cross out of your fingers. So you know what they're actually doing? It started, this practice started back with Germanic Christians, and what they would do is they knew they were doing something that God called an abomination. And so to protect... <laughs> get the logic of this, to protect themselves from God, they'd make a sign of the cross, which evidently prevented God from being able to judge them for lying. And so you put that behind your back and you're appealing to God with something not to judge you for something that he hates by making a sign of the cross and God's about to judge you and says, whoops, I can't. This guy's got a cross on his fingers. And so this whole idea of lying and deception, it began with Christians who still wanted to live the old way and put on the Burger King hat and still live that way as believers and they never put it away from them. Instead, they were just trying, they were just hoping to protect themselves from God's judgment against lying. Now, as believers, if we know that God hates lying so much, why do we still lie? When we lie, we do so to protect ourselves. When we lie, we're declaring to God, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust that, Lord, you're gonna do what's best for me through truth, and so I'm gonna take control, and I'm going to lie to protect myself, because clearly God cannot. If I tell the truth, that's gonna be the worst thing that ever happens to me in life, and so I'm going to speak dishonestly. It's a lack of faith in God, and yet it's so important to us. In fact, in our passage here in Ephesians chapter four, he says that lying, he says we don't lie because we are members of one another. It hurts us when we lie to one another. What hurts you 
ends up hurting me. When we lie, does that destroy your effectiveness as a team? We're in uh, Major League Baseball postseason right now. Let's say you got a baseball team, and let's just say for fun, they lie to each other on the team. Can you imagine the catcher? He's sitting there, and he's giving certain signs to the pitchers. I don't know what they are, but they do some fun things with their fingers. And somehow the pitcher knows what kind of pitch to throw. What if he starts pranking the pitch, pitcher there? And he tells him to throw a certain pitch, and now he cranks out a home run. You lose. What if you got a third base coach? He sees the ball coming in, and he's still telling you to round for home because he thinks it's going to be really funny watching you try to beat out that throw, and you get thrown out at home. How's a baseball team going to do if you're lying and deceiving one another? You're going to lose. What about with a married couple? How are you going to do as a couple when you lie to one another? Are you going to win as a team or are you going to lose? You're going to lose every time. And so when we lie, you may think you're protecting yourself. The Bible here says you're actually hurting yourself. You're hurting the team. And when the team loses, you lose. And that speaking truth, uh, he, he tethers, Ephesians 4.15, he tethers honesty to love. If I love somebody, I will tell them the truth. Because there's nothing more loving than telling somebody what's true. Even if it's difficult. And what the Bible tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So honesty is tethered to love. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is or is the head into Christ. And so he sees speaking truthful words in a loving way as a symbol of maturity. It shows that you're growing up into Jesus when you speak truthful words in a loving way. Can you speak truthful words in an unloving way? Oh, a lot of times we try to explain it away and we call it being authentic or we call it just keeping it real. And really that's usually slang for, I'm a rude person. I really don't contemplate how my words affect other people. I'm keeping it real. We can do that in marriage and we can say truthful things that are very damaging and hurting to one another. Instead, the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. So let's say, ladies, that your husband, he lost his job and it's been a while since he's had a job and you go up to him, you know, and you'd be like, you know, I don't know, who do we who to pick on here today? Mark Renfro, why didn't you get it? Why didn't you get in that job? You ain't had a job for six months. You aren't working and bringing home the food. That's corrupting. That's going to break him down. What would speaking the truth in love sound like? You know, brother, it's really difficult time, but I just want to thank you for your leadership in this. I know you're working hard, and I believe that God has the right job out there for you. Both are truthful things, you know, maybe. One of them breaks down somebody. The other one builds them up and encourages them. By the way, Mark's not looking for a job, so don't be hitting him up with, hey, you ought to come out and work for me. So we want to speak the truth in love. Number two, we're going to keep current. Verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, he starts out with something that sounds a little odd. Be angry. Doesn't that go against everything you've ever heard in church? Be angry. Is there ever an environment in life where I, should, where I can be angry and not sinning? We have to understand what anger is. There's anger. There's the feeling that you have in your heart. And then there's anger the way that you demonstrate and show it. So we, two people can have anger in their heart. One uses it constructively and one uses it in a destructive way. And here he's clearly talking about being constructive. But anger is just the response of the heart to when evil is done or injustice is done. If you didn't feel angry in some situations, there's something wrong. For instance, if you, this week I saw some videos of some rockets being launched from Russia into the Ukraine, not attacking military targets as they had, targeting at a bridge, but they targeted pedestrian civilian areas. So a pedestrian bridge gets blown up and you see this dude running away. You see, you see a playground and you see a crater next to the playground where they're deliberately attacking civilian targets. If you don't feel some kind of anger toward that, friends, there's, there's something wrong with our hearts, a lack of compassion, that we should feel angry when something is done wrongly, even in marriage. We, sometimes we're wronged by our mate or we wrong them. And it's not wrong to feel angry about that because it was in, unjust. It was a, against the Bible but what are you going to do with that? I mean, think about this. Do you know God gets angry, right? God feels angry. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 8, he says, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Now, Horeb was just another word for Mount Sinai, where God gave 
the Israelites the law. And you remember Moses, he goes up on the, you ever seen Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments? I know it's an old movie now, but you know, he goes up on the mountain and what do they have down below? They're building this golden calf and they say, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. The Bible later on tells us that they, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. They weren't talking about Monopoly game night. They rose up to play. They were importing an Egyptian fertility rite into their way of living. It was a grossly public and immoral thing. And so Moses comes down off this mountain and God is mad and would have destroyed them. Okay, so God being angry, was God in sin? I hope you don't think he was. God wasn't sinning, right? God can be angry toward things that are wrong and unjust. So we've got to be careful. You may feel anger, and that anger itself is not wrong. We're not just supposed to be oblivious to pain in the world. Hurt me, I feel nothing. You know, we're some kind of state of some bizarre Buddhist Zen or whatever. Nothing hurts me, bounces all off me. I don't ever feel anything deeply. Well, God feels things deeply. So the feeling itself is not wrong. But what are you going to do with this? Okay, so he says here, be angry and do not sin. Be angry, but don't respond in a sinful way to blow up at them or to clam up, to hold that pain inside of you. We're not meant just to be angry and hold it inside. In fact, our text here warns against that. What does it say? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, when he's talking about the sun going down, he's referring to the passage of time. Don't you let time just go by with unresolved anger, because what will unresolved anger ultimately turn into? long-lasting bitterness. We saw that with Naomi. If you read uh, Ruth chapter one and verse 20, Naomi, she, she had a husband, he died. She had two sons, thank God, they can take care of me. They died. She lost everything back then. That was her retirement plan. And so she became increasingly angry at what God has taken away from her. Eventually, she has to return to her home country, goes to Bethlehem, and then her old friends say, hey, Naomi, what's up? Don't call me Naomi. What does she ask to be called? Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me Naomi as if everything's okay. Call me bitter. Says, I left full and I'm coming back empty. And so her unresolved anger, even toward God, caused her to be a very bitter woman. And that can happen in marriage too, can't it? Where we have certain things that upset us, they made us angry, maybe it's an unresolved betrayal. And rather than to deal with it in a productive way, and, and, and we're not going to sin in our explosion, we just hold it inside. And what that does is it creates a bitterness wedge and it goes right there into our relationship and it just keeps driving it deeper and deeper and pushing us further and further apart. That bitterness will lead to isolation. It will lead to you trying to find joy in other relationships, not your mate, and it pushes you apart because we're refusing to deal with the anger feelings that are inside of us. So we don't just bottle it up. We don't just explode. We're to do something constructive with that. But it means when our mate says, you know, what's wrong with you? We don't just say nothing. I've been guilty of that, I'll tell you. What was I, what was I intending when I said, what's wrong? Nothing. My intention was, I'm tired, I'm hurting, I don't want to talk about it anymore right now because I don't want to experience any further pain. I need time to process that with God. That's what nothing meant for me. What should I have said? When I said nothing, I wasn't even obeying the first rule of communication, was I? Be honest. Is something wrong? No. Of course there is. Well, now, what should I have said? I should have been honest with her and just said, you know, that, that interchange, that exchange, that conversation we had, it hurt me. And I'm not ready to process it right away. I need a little time with the Lord, come back in an hour. Now my wife, we're very different like this. She's a verbal processor. So when we have pain in our relationship, I mean like right then, let's talk about it. Let's sit down, let's hash this out, let's, let's just go right to it, let's talk through it. I'm not that guy. I'm the kind of guy I wanna think I want to retreat a little bit, I want to pray, I want to make sure that I'm in the right spirit, and then I want to talk. And so we had to kind of learn this system here where we don't, we don't necessarily have to talk about it immediately, but we also don't just put it off for like ever, and weeks go by and we don't deal with it. That creates bitterness. And so what we do is, if we're in a place where we can't talk about it, we just say, 
I'm hurting too much to talk about it right now. I want to process it, make sure my heart's in the right place. See me in an hour or two hours or whatever. But you put it on the books. We don't put it off. Now, there's many couples, they'll use a marital tool, and it'll go something like this. It's before you go to bed, you just say something like, are all hearts clear? I had a counselor once share that with me. He just said, he said, when we go to bed, we just say, are all hearts clear? Now, that may sound very stiff and formal to you. Well, sweetheart, are all hearts clear this evening? But the good thing about it is, you both know what that phrase means. Is there anything between us right now that we need to talk about before we go to bed? Is there any issues that are outstanding, things that are on your heart, things that are gonna prevent you from being able to sleep well that evening? It also allows for the fact that some of us don't always notice when we hurt one another. Have you ever done that? You hurt your mate and you had no idea that they were mad, no idea that they're hurting, they're upset. There have been times where uh, my family and I, we like to play board games. And so often I'm the one that learns the board game and then I instruct everybody else on how to play. And so we'll get a whole group of people around and we're playing and I'm basically playing everybody's turn. Here's how you do your turn. Here's how you do your turn. Here's, and then I got people coming on the side asking me questions and pretty soon I'm getting kind of confused and I'm just getting very task oriented. Here's what you do. Yeah, I said that five times. Okay, so here's what you do. You didn't tell me that rule. I said it five times. You know, and so I, I can get a little bit, I don't know, focused. Is that, a, is that a polite way of saying rude? But you know, I could say something not very considerate of her feelings. And you know, I didn't even notice I hurt her until everybody goes home. We go to bed that night and she's not talking. Now I know something's up because she's usually very communicative with me. And something, a tool like this, our all hearts clear, gives us an opportunity, both of us, to be able to say if there's something that we've done that hurt the other that we weren't even aware of and it allows us to solve today's problems today. That's what it means to keep current. We solve today's problems today. We don't wait for tomorrow. We don't wait for weeks to go by. We keep current on our problems. We don't let them grow up into bigger and bigger things. We catch our problems while they're small. And that's usually where a lot of our fights come from, right? They usually start with little insignificant things. Now, if you read through the Song of Solomon, I don't encourage young children to read through that right now, but as you get older and you're married, you're reading through the Song of Solomon. It's God's guide to love, intimacy, and romance and does also picture Christ's love for us as a church, but it's a literal person having a literal relationship and we can learn from that. Well, in that, Solomon marries this bride that he just calls the Shulamite. Many believe it's a takeoff of his own name, Shulam, Solomon. And that he's got the Shulamite bride and she worked in the vineyards. I worked Burger King. She worked out in the fields and got a suntan. But she knew a lot about the fields and something she imported into her relationship about her relationship with Solomon from the fields is this. She said in Song of Solomon 2.15, she says, catch the foxes for us. It didn't mean that they had pet foxes, okay? Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. She's talking about their relationship as a vineyard. It's something that requires great care, but can also provide tremendous refreshment, enjoyment, and fruit. And she says, in the real vineyards, there's a little thing called foxes, and you never hardly see them, but they're around. And what they'll do is they'll come in, and they will destroy the vineyard, which is a real shame, because that vineyard took a lot of work. You buy the land, you work the land, you build this big trellis structure, you put vines in there, you're weeding, you're watering, you're fertilizing this vineyard, and then you're gonna do that, by the way, for three years before you see your first grape. Three years. And so she sees her relationship as that. It's something that you work on for years and years and years, intending and watering and fertilizing this relationship. And then right as the vines are about to produce fruit, what do they first produce? these little blossoms, and they smell sweet and fragrant, and evidently foxes have a little proclivity toward eating these blossoms, and it's those blossoms that are gonna turn into grapes. And so she was so concerned that as a vineyard keeper about these fox destroying the grape harvest right before it has a chance to come to fruition, she says the same thing can happen in a relationship, that there's little foxes that creep in, and just as our relationship is budding, just as we're making progress, Satan's gonna send little foxes into your vineyard, and these little problems become these big things that eat away the, the joy of your relationship with one another, and right before your relationship bears fruit, it's gone. And so she's encouraging them as a couple, let's look for those little foxes, those little irritations, those little frustrations, and let's deal with it now before it becomes something bigger. 
That's what's being communicated. That's why we have to keep current. We don't let the sun go down on our wrath. We don't put off dealing with problems, even the little guys, because even the little things can create tremendous heartache and trouble. When we don't deal with the little foxes, verse 27 says we do something, we give opportunity to the devil. Opportunity means to give place to so they have an opportunity to do something. It's Normandy. What we first send to the beaches in Normandy? Landing ships and soldiers, right? And it, that conflict created a beachhead where after that, who came in? wasn't just more soldiers, it was engineers and such, and they, they built up a camp and a base of operations, and from there they were gonna work and continue taking France and push Germany back into Germany. The Bible says that's what we do for Satan when we allow little conflicts to come in and we don't keep current on our problems, we allow our problems to just go on and we don't resolve them because it's painful to deal with those problems. He says, when we have unresolved conflict in our marriage, it gives place to the devil. We have given him a beachhead. That conflict has cleared a space in our home for Satan to live. It's exactly what that means. It means we've made up the guest bedroom and turned over the blanket and put a mint on the pillow for Satan. It means when we have dinner, we set an extra setting at the table so that Satan can come in with that initial conflict and continue to take ground from you because he is that which steals, kills, and destroys. And so not keeping current and solving today's problems today allows him a beachhead in our life to continue to take ground and to drive a wedge between us because ultimately Satan's not happy that you just don't like each other. He wants you divorced. He wants you breaking up. He wants you busting up uh, your church that you're a part of. He wants you destroying your children. A lot of this can be avoided by catching the foxes when they're little. Catching these little guys before they destroy a relationship and keep current, solve today's problems today. Now, I will say this. There have been times where my wife and I have had disagreements and arguments, and we can take this phrase very literally, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But I found often that many times when our controversies would arise, the sun had already gone down, okay? It's nighttime. <laughs> Are all hearts clear? No, they're not. Let me tell you why, you know? There have been times in our life, there, I worked out at a Baptist camp in Alaska for a whole summer once, I was a program director there, and I would get up at 5.30 and I'd come back at 10.30 at night every day, Monday through Friday. And I would run all day with these kids and I was wiped out, exhausted. And my wife was how many months pregnant? Like six, seven months pregnant. And she had injured her back working in the kitchen with mats and stuff, so she was stuck in a motor coach on the back property of the camp by herself, pregnant, while I'm gone and working all day. So I come home, I'm tired. I mean, I'm involuntarily falling asleep. You ever get to that point? You're just, you're falling asleep. And she's, as soon as I get home, she's just ready to share with me about her day, everything that happened to her in a mobile home by herself. But something, she had things to share and I wasn't there to share it. And as, you know, and sometimes that would create conflict between us. And I was just falling asleep and I wasn't being sensitive to her needs and things and it created problems. And we had to come to a place where, listen, our dealing with the conflict at say two in the morning is actually deepening the conflict because now we're dealing with tiredness and out of control emotions. Let's agree to meet at a time when we're healthy. Now it's important we don't just say, let's meet later and you don't schedule a time, you schedule it. Let's meet tomorrow, let's meet tomorrow morning, let's meet tomorrow for lunch. Let me get off early and let's talk about this. But the real key here isn't just every day. It's that we don't let problems just get put off, that we're dealing with generally today's problems today, but that we, we don't just let them grow and create bitterness in our heart. Finally, we're looking at number three, attack the problem, not the person, okay? In our conversations, when we have conflict, there's a temptation to move from trying to solve the problem that's creating issues with us, and we move from the problem to the person. Now, in debate, we would call that an ad hominem argument. We're no longer discussing whether or not you believe in capital punishment. Now we've gone to, you're a worthless person, I hate you, God hates you, society hates you, and you know, I think you beat puppies for fun. You know, we're attacking that person. We're not, we're not trying to solve the problem anymore. And we say things like, you're such a, you always, I should have seen this in you when we were dating. You know, you're just like your mother. Yeah, you try that one, guys. 
Tell me how that one worked out. Okay, you don't say stuff like that. Now we're not trying to solve the problem, are we? Hey, how are we gonna pay the bills this month? Well, you know, I could take a little work or we could spend less here. We could drop this account. And You're not trying to solve the problem anymore. You're done with the problem. You wanna attack the person. And that's when we learn to fight dirty. It's when you're no longer talking about the problem itself. You're trying to cause personal bodily injury. Even boxing has rules. God wants us to fight clean. Don't be Mike Tyson biting somebody's ear, you know, going outside the rules. In marriage, we can do that. When we go from attacking the problem to attacking the person, we're ear biting Mike Tyson at that point. We've said the rules aren't good enough. Now I just want you to hurt. I want you to suffer as I am suffering. And those are the things that leave marital scars because long after you forgot what you were arguing about, what are you going to remember? My mate thinks so little of me, they actually regret ever marrying me. I've heard husbands tell their wives that. I actually heard of a husband once who told his wife he wasted the best years of his life on her. We don't attack dirty like that. We don't earbite in marriage. We talk about the problem, not the person, because Proverbs 18, 21 reminds us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. When we speak words, they're not just neutral. They're either providing information, some kind of benefit to them, or the words that we speak have the power of death in them, to hurt them, to rot the person, to decay them. And that leads us to our text this morning. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk isn't talking about the issue itself. It's trying to corrupt the person. This is a word that means to rot. You ever get a fit of insanity and decide you're not gonna have chimichangas again for dinner that night, and you're gonna go out to Aldi or wherever you go, Kroger, and you're gonna buy vegetables? but that zucchini stays on the counter for three and a half weeks until it's oozing, theoretically. Okay, you, you have this idea, what caused it to rot? There's these bacteria that are naturally present that will break that down. If you want that zucchini to last, you gotta follow your grandma, don't you? What does she do? She cans that stuff. I don't know, do you can zucchini, tomatoes? Whatever you can, I don't can. But when you do that, I know that you boil this thing in this jar with this lid and you're killing all the microorganisms that naturally rot the vegetable. And it creates a vacuum so that no corrupting elements will reach those vegetables. And you could eat that. It's why today you can go on into the basement of your grandma and something she canned during the Civil War and you can still have those tomatoes today because there's no corrupting element inside. That's why those vegetables last longer than the ones that you put out in your counter three weeks ago. The same thing in marriage. Why do some marriages last longer than others? I think it's because there's some of us, we've learned to can our marriages. We boil out you know, some of the, the negative harmful influences in the way that we speak to one another. We don't use corrupting speech, that bacteria that comes in and it breaks our mate's confidence down. It breaks down their sense of, of, of well-being and self-worth. It's corrupting talk. And he says, they, they, we should not allow any corrupting speech to come out of our mouth, ever. Attack the problem. Don't try to corrupt your mate and make them feel lower. Now, I know folks do that. They will, they will run down their mate simply because a mate that is broken down is easier to control. But can I tell you with, with love here, our job is not to control our mate. This, you know, this fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There's no fruit of the Spirit called others control, where I have to make my mate what they should be. That's not my responsibility. In fact, a lot of our problems arise when we try to control our mate. We don't leave our mate with God and say, God, you deal with them. Many problems arise because we try to control, and to control, some people will play dirty, and they will bite the ear of their mate, and they will break them down with corrupting speech. Proverbs 34, 13 says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That word keep means to control, to leash it. And, all, and, and we must because James 3, 8 says this about your tongue and mine. He says, no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our tongues, sometimes we just get 
lack of self-control, we just let the tongue wag and flap and do whatever it wants. It's the only muscle in our body that's only attached at one end, and it just waves like a flag sometimes. And we just let it say whatever it wants to. And we, we baptize that under personality and say, that's just who I am. Be careful, don't say that to folks, because the Bible says a fool gives full vent to his anger, just tells it like it is. So you don't want to, you don't want to be announcing to folks that you're a fool. Okay, so don't blame your personality for why you don't leash your tongue and hold on to it. Because if we don't leash our tongues and prevent them from saying the things that they want to say, we're going to harm people. We're going to push them away from us. My wife and I, we've been taking walks lately out in the beautiful fall days. And being in Boyd County, we discovered that everybody has 3.5 dogs in their house. Everybody's got a dog. Most of them, they're in the house and barking at us or in the fence behind their house barking at us or they're in the front yard on a chain running up to the roadside and barking at us. But at least they're... They're tethered, they're controlled. But there's one house in our community who seems to have a lot of great trust in their dogs, big dogs, three of them, and they act like a pack. And so these dogs, you're gonna walk in by, you're just holding hands, you know, and you know, you're just having a great time in life, and all of a sudden you're set upon by a pack of dogs, you know, and I'm looking for sticks on the road, you know. I'm carrying, I'm looking to carry dog spray or something to protect me. What do you think we do with those neighbors? Do we go by that house? Intentionally, no, we take the long way around because I don't want to be set upon by these dogs. In the same way, sometimes people, have, they trust their tongues like they trust the dogs. Oh, he's never bitten anyone before. How many people are in the hospital by dogs have never bitten anyone? But we just, we trust our mouths rather than to leash our tongue and leash our mouth. And like the, like the Bible says, to put a guard over my lips, we just let it run free and hope it doesn't hurt anybody too bad. Well, people are gonna do the same thing with you like we do our Boyd County dogs. We're gonna avoid that neighbor. And if our tongue flaps too much and we say corrupting speech and we harm people, even our mate is gonna look to avoid us. What did the Bible say about living with a contentious person? Better to live on the roof or out in the desert. You're going to avoid being around them. And so it's going to divide us if we don't learn to control our speech with one another. And so he says, let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth, except that which is uh, fitting for the occasion. Fitting means that we adapt what we want to say to what needs to be said. We adapt our words. The Bible uh, will tell us in Proverbs 27, 14, he says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted as cursing. You've had one of those friends, you get up, they get up early in the morning and you don't, but they want to make you a morning person. And so they get up and they're singing praises to God. And they're so just stymied by why you're upset that they're singing holy, holy, holy in, in the top of their voice at 5.30 in the morning. It's counted to you as a curse because your words aren't fitting the situation. So the Bible says we need to fit our words for what's good for the occasion. To think about, is this the right time to share this? Now, I'm an idiot. My wife will knock something off the counter and it will shatter on the floor. And would you believe, I feel for some reason that that's a great time to admonish her on how to be more careful with where we place dishes. Do you think she really wants to hear that at that time? She does not care one bit. She, that's for another time. And so we've got to make sure that there may be an appropriate thing to say, but maybe not at that timing. So we've got to look at the timing of what we say because our goal is, what does our verse say? To give grace to those who hear. In our speech, we're not there to control them. We're not there to uh, make things pleasing to me. I'm not here to manipulate my mate. I'm not here to deceive them or to myself, my words, my intention in speaking to my mate is to give grace to those who hear. Now, I see a lot of Awana shirts here today, so I know there's several of you kids know the Awana definition for grace. When I went to Awanas, they taught me it was God's unmerited favor, unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love. Now, the words that we speak, we speak them not because our mate deserved to hear loving and kind words, but because we're seeking to give grace to those who hear. We're giving them something good that they didn't have coming. Can you talk like that with your mate? That even if your mate is in the middle of being mean to you and rude to you and inconsiderate to you, can you love them because God loved you first? Can you love them because God showed grace to you first? Remember Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were weak, while we were still sinful, he gave us grace. He died for us 
didn't just forgive us of our sins simply, but then he gave us something we don't deserve. He promises eternal blessing with him in his presence forever. That's what our speech should do. We don't just wanna be people who don't lie. We don't just wanna be people who don't say corrupting things. We wanna be known as people who that when, whether it's our mate or anybody at church, we're known for this. This person always makes me feel better after I get done talking to them. I always feel loved by that person when I get done talking to them. I always feel like I felt really low and discouraged before, but now talking to my mate or talking to somebody here at church, now I feel like I can conquer the world because they have strengthened me. The Bible calls that edification. Our passage here says that's what we're to do. That no corrupting speech come out of your mouth, but that which is good for edifying. It means like bricks to build up, to strengthen, to buttress, to to encourage. When you're around somebody who makes you feel like you can be more and do more than you normally can, that's when you know you're around an edifying person. But if talking to somebody you always feel lower, you always feel a little less, that's when you know you're around a person who is corrupting. They're rotting you from the inside out. Friends, let's don't be the one doing the rotting. Let's be the ones doing the edification, the building up, and let's give grace to those who hear. Yeah, maybe your mate is still using corrupting speech with you, but can you have the grace not to return evil for evil. While they're saying bad things to you, can you say good things to them? Can you like Jesus, while people are saying crucify him and you're a devil and you're awful, can you be like him and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? When we behave like that, you're most like your heavenly father, who when he was reviled, the Bible says, did not revile in return. So be honest, keep current, Attack the problem, not the person. Because our mate, in the end, friends, our mate's not the enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the word the Bible uses for demons. Let's acknowledge that there is a, there's a spiritual battle going on here, and there's no greater spiritual battle than what's happening right there in your home. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy your home, because if he can destroy your home, he can destroy this church, he can destroy a country, and an entire country collapses in on itself when our families aren't healthy. Let's commit as Unity Baptist Church to be families that communicate in a healthy way with one another. And if you need help with that, as a church, we're here to help you through it. Contact the office and we'll walk you through whatever we can. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study healthy patterns of communication, to communicate even as Jesus communicates, to love as he loved, many of us are gonna walk away here recognizing there's areas of my life that need improvement. That there's nobody here who's walking away saying, you know what, I've got this covered. God, I pray that you would help us to have the humility to acknowledge where we've done wrong to our mates and the love and the grace to speak words that edify and build up, not corrupt and rot our mates from the inside out. Give us strong families, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ. Click on the link in the show notes and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.